if the first step toward the preaching of a good sermon is choosing a good text, then I've made a good start this morning. Because the text that I've selected this morning is a text that's good because it is compelling. To be honest, there are some words that leave us listless. Some texts knock at the door of our hearts so softly we never really go to the trouble to let them in. And then there are other texts that seem to speak to us in some kind of foreign language. Those are the ones we never really hear what they have to say. Those kinds of texts leave us inattentive and they leave us unmoved. But the passage I've chosen this morning from Paul's first letter to the church at Corinth is one that compels our attention. We may resent it or we may welcome it. We may hate it or we may love it. But whatever our attitude is, It's a text that we will give a hearing to. And I would venture to say that it is a text that no one who's present this morning, and no one present in any audience who ever hears it, can face it with lethargic indifference. Now, you can think what you will, but that in itself is a real advantage. I'll let you in on a little secret. To attempt to speak when no one is listening is sheer futility. Because for a speaker to be of any service, folks must be listening. So for the text to be one that is interesting enough to win a hearing is a fundamental necessity. Though a minister or preacher might be gifted, without the attention of his audience, his work is in vain. What he preaches may be as fundamental as the plan of salvation. It may be as true as Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. But if folks aren't listening and if folks are asleep, he might as well be up here making mud pies. Because he's wasting his time and he's wasting the time of the congregation. The text I've chosen this morning, I don't have the fear of that. Because I know it's going to be something that will compel your attention. And it's more than just a compelling passage of Scripture. It's also a very revealing passage of Scripture. It's a passage of Scripture that holds up a mirror in front of everyone who hears it. And we can't fail to get a glimpse of our own faces in this mirror. And that, beloved, is something that should be for our own good. Because as Robert Burns, the poet of Scotland, said, Oh, would some gift gift to give us to see ourselves as others see us? It's often needed that we see ourselves as we really are. And our reaction to this text this morning will 
tell us something of our own character. It's going to read you. And it's going to reveal yourself to you far better than any fortune teller you could have ever consulted. Now, if you find yourself a bit resentful when you hear it, if you find yourself a bit peevish and begin to say, huh, I thought I was going to get to hear a gospel sermon, and now I'm going to have to be bored with this kind of a tirade. If the text antagonizes you, and stirs your indignation, then you can count on something. And that is that something is desperately wrong with you. If the Word jars you, and if it angers you, the odds are good that either you have never met the Lord, or you have backslidden. On the other hand, If you find our text this morning to be a source of joy, if it breathes upon your soul like a breath of fresh air, if it sets the fields of your heart to flowering, then the chances are you're facing in the right direction. If you can greet this passage of Scripture with a welcome, then however humble your estimate of your own worth might be, there is every reason to believe that you have become a partaker of the divine nature. If this text makes your heart sing, then you already possess in some measure the mind of Jesus Christ. This passage, this text will divide almost any audience into two groups. Some will love it. Some will hate it. Some will welcome it and some will slam the door in its face. It all depends on the kind of man or woman that you really are. Now right about now, since I didn't publish the text in the order of worship, and right about now since I didn't publish the text in the bulletin, Some of you are thinking right about now, enough of this already. What are you preaching about? Am I right? This amazing text is found in Paul's first letter to the church at Corinth. It's in chapter 16 and verse 1. And here's how it begins. Now concerning the collection, now I have your attention, don't I? Right now, some folks are ready to welcome a message on this grand and glorious text of the Bible. And some folks are probably wishing for a way of escape. You know, the Scottish have a reputation for being, shall we say, conservative or frugal. I hesitate to use the word tight because... I have scotch blood in my ancestry. So I prefer frugal or conservative. And so while some folks welcome this text, and over the last 53 years as I've preached from this text, I've seen folks that welcomed it, and I've seen others that were like the two Scotsmen that went to church one Sunday. 
They made their plans that they were going to church, but they decided that they would go late and get there too late for the offering after it had already been taken up. So they arrived for church, and they arrived late, and they walked in and took their places on the very front pew. And just as they took their places, it was announced that it was time for the collection. There was no way of escape. The only thing for the two Scotsmen to do, one of them fainted and the other one had to take him out for some fresh air. Now, I want you to notice the background of this text. It is a part of one of the most inspirational passages you'll ever find in the New Testament. Paul has been leading us through some of the high mountain peaks of Christianity. In 1 Corinthians 15, we read, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried and He rose again the third day. And then Paul writes, But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that sleep. And then he talks about this corruptible body. He says in verse 53, this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal should put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I've given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do you. Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store as God has prospered him. You see, you're ready to exclaim, what a shocking letdown. Paul talks about the risen Christ. He talks about this corruptible flesh putting on incorruption. He talks about the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And as much as you know, your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Now concerning the collection for the saints... It's like a leap from sunlight to darkness or from the garden to the desert. And you think, why did such a brilliant man like Paul permit himself to be guilty of such an anticlimax as this? Didn't Paul know more of the speaker's art or the writer's art than this? The truth is, the Apostle Paul did not look upon this as an anticlimax. Paul looked upon it as a climax. We have to bear in mind something, beloved. The gospel of money is never contradictory, nor is it inconsistent with the gospel of the spiritual. Paul believed to pass from the a discussion of the fundamentals of the Christian faith 
to the practical aspects of Christianity and its results in human life, Paul believed that was sound logic and good sense. Look at the mountain peaks of faith. Christ died for our sins. Paul preached the crucified Christ. He preached the gospel of a crucified Christ. And with his fellow Christians, Paul gloried in the cross. The cross meant to Paul, as it does to us, much, much more than just a historical event. It revealed God in Jesus Christ getting under the burden of a needy world. Beloved, the cross of Jesus Christ. There's more to it than just a way for us to escape the fires of hell. The cross is something that we are to share with others. It's through the cross that we die to self through its power. But Paul did more than preach the gospel of a crucified Christ. Paul preached the gospel of a risen Christ. He said, now is Christ risen from the dead. And Paul frankly faces the fact that if that is not true, if it's not true that Christ was raised from the dead, we have no gospel. We have no good news. He said, if Christ is not risen from the dead, then our faith is vain and we're still in our sins. But you see, Paul had met the risen Christ. On that road to Damascus, on his way to persecute Christians, Paul had met the crucified Christ and the risen Christ and he had transformed him. He had changed him and Paul had walked in his fellowship. And through that meeting with the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, Paul's whole life was changed. He wrote in this same Corinthian letter, Old things are passed away. All things, he said, have become new. What happened to him? He met Jesus Christ face to face. And his life became Christ-centered instead of Paul-centered. And the practical outcome for Paul was, and the practical outcome for those who shared his faith and his experience was, they were to be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And one work that they were to abound in was giving. And as Paul transitions and he says, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Now concerning the collection, he gives some very practical directions for our giving. You know, we talked about our budget for this coming year in our Bible class this morning. We talked about the state of the church and where we were and what our status was as of the end of the year. Paul says, let every one of you and that's the very first of four simple phrases in this passage that are both practical and helpful for the offering. Paul didn't look upon giving as a privilege, as a, as a drudgery. 
Paul didn't look upon giving as, oh my. Paul looked upon giving as a privilege. Paul remembered it was Jesus who said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Giving is a blessing of which no one is to be robbed. I'm aware, I'm very aware, that poverty sometimes, and sometimes a lack of material possessions, I'm aware that prevents folks sometimes from being able to give. But I'm also aware that pride and a lack of love often prevent more people from giving than poverty does. But this blessing of giving, it's not just for a few. It's for everyone. Paul says, let every one of you. Friends, that's plain and it's emphatic. Paul didn't say, let every one of you who approves of the preacher give. And Paul didn't say, let every one of you who approves of all the decisions made give. He didn't say, let those who participate in making the decisions give. Paul did say, let every one of you. Rich and poor, old and young, everyone's included in that statement. Giving is an act of worship. And giving is an unspeakable blessing. And it's something that every member of the body of Christ is to participate in. He says, let every one of you lay by Him in store. That is, we are to give systematically. Every Good and healthful exercise is better if it's practiced systematically. The easiest way to give, the most businesslike way to give, the most helpful way to give is systematically. And that bears the sanction of plain common sense. Let every one of you lay by Him in store as God has prospered Him. That is, we are to give proportionately. How fine and reasonable that is. The man of one talent is not called upon to do as much as the man who has five talents. But the obligations of the man of small ability are as genuine as the one whose abilities are superb. We are to give in accordance with how we've been blessed. All God asks of each of us is that we give according to our ability. All of us are asked to give and to do our very best. Here's where this passage holds a mirror up to us. Can we say that we're doing that? Can we say we're giving God our very best? If Jesus had passed the offering plate this morning instead of 
Mike and Wayne and Johnny. But if Jesus had been passing the offering plate this morning, could we have looked Jesus in the eye and said, Lord, I love you this much, and this is the best I can do. That's what it takes. That's what it takes to make this church. That's what it takes to make any church a power for righteousness here and to make its influence felt throughout our city and to the uttermost parts of the world. We must give with the conviction that we're making a safe investment. That's what Paul meant when he said, For as much as you know, your labor is not in vain in the Lord. I ask you a question. Have you ever made a bad investment? I can tell by the look on a face or two out there that you have. I have. I've made more than one in my time. And I can sympathize with you. But look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight. Because here's an investment that's not a bad investment. Here's an investment that's a sure investment. It's the real deal. Be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord for as much as you know. You know, he said, your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Now let's bring this down where we live this morning. Are we as a church doing as much as we'd like to be doing? We do a lot of good things. And for a church our size were to be commended. And for the way you gave generously last year, you're to be congratulated. We support children's homes. We send money every month to High Plains Children's Home in Amarillo and Cherokee Children's Home in Cherokee, Texas. And your giving was such last year that we actually, at the end of the year, gave them both a one-time contribution equal to 50% of what we had sent them already the whole year. We gave them more money. We participate annually in the Big Heart Campaign with the Children's Home of Lubbock. And if you'll remember last year, we collected over a thousand rolls of toilet paper for the Children's Home of Lubbock. Twice a year, Sunny Glen Children's Home comes and cleans out our pantry and they're always impressed and appreciative for the amount of goods that they get from our pantry. On your budget you read this morning in Bible class, we participate in the new movers program with House to House, Heart to Heart. That is every month. Every new mover in Shelby County that includes Tenahaw, Timpson, Joaquin, Center, and Shelbyville. Every person with a new address in those five post offices gets an invitation mailed out to attend worship at the Center Church of Christ. They actually receive two contacts from house to house, heart to heart. And then once a year to selected zip code addresses in the Center Post Office, we send the paper house to house heart to heart 
We do mission work through the television program In Search of the Lord's Way. It's broadcast nationwide over an entire network of channels. It's on Dish. It's on Direct TV. It's on other channels. Phil Sanders, the speaker for In Search of the Lord's Way, he's coming at the end of April. He's coming to center. He's going to be preaching on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday here. We support that on a monthly basis. We're having our area-wide scene and gospel meeting at the end of April. So we're doing good things. Are we doing as much as we would like to do? No. Every week that goes by, we get requests from good and worthy programs and good and worthy works that would like to have some support, and we can't participate in all of them. Are we doing as much as we would like to do? No, we're not. There's more that needs to be done. And there's more that we would like to do. But we are working and we are doing good things for the Lord. And as a congregation, you're to be commended for that. But we also, from time to time, need to take inventory. Every good business takes inventory. And from time to time, we need to take a personal inventory of our own spirituality. And we need to look and see, what what am I returning to the Lord? Does what I return to the Lord, does it accurately measure my personal prosperity? Does it accurately measure the blessings that I enjoy? Or did I arrive at some set amount at some time in the past, and I've never taken the time to reevaluate that set amount that I arrived at in the past? I'm going to tell you something that's no secret. Inflation is at a high, is higher than it's been in 40 years in our country, and that's no secret. And it puts everyone's pocketbook in a squeeze. And our own expenses as a church are going up. We're already seeing higher utility bills than we did last year. To pay the property insurance, the liability insurance for us as a congregation increases every year. Our operating expenses go up. In fact, if you look at the budget that you were given this morning, over 30% of that budget goes just to keep the doors open for utilities and insurance and maintaining the building. But let's consider some practical suggestions perhaps. Some practical things about our giving to the Lord. As we take personal inventory, let's consider the amount that we are currently giving. When did I arrive at that amount? Is it possible that I could do just a little bit more? And I'm not saying a little bit more. I'm not saying everybody needs to raise their contribution $50. You'd laugh at me. But let me ask you a question. Let's just bring this down where we live. Let's say this morning you went to Whataburger after church, or you went to Chicken Express, or you went to the Dairy Queen, or you went to McDonald's. And you're standing there in line waiting to order, and you look, and my goodness, standing right behind you in line is the Lord. Would you offer to buy His lunch for Him? 
Or would you at least offer to buy him a cold drink? I think we would. Sometimes we need to do a little simple math. The last time I bought a Whataburger, I just kind of had to pick my jaw up off the floor. But do you what, what if what if every one of us bought the Lord a Whataburger once a week? It's going to cost about five bucks to buy the Lord a Whataburger. Do you realize if thirty people bought the Lord a Whataburger once a week, that's a hundred and fifty dollars a week. Over a year's time, that would increase the contributions of the Lord's church by $7,800 if we just bought the Lord a Whataburger once a week. And you can take anything. You can take a, a cold drink at McDonald's during happy hour or whatever. But it's amazing how much those small things can just add up. We need to be sure that we're showing our love to the Lord, not just in the amount that we give, but also in the regularity with which we give it. One of the things that helped this congregation survive the pandemic as strong financially as it did was the commitment of so many people to give whether they were here or not and to make sure that the bills were paid. When we must be absent... We need to make certain that we either leave our offering or make it up when we come back. You see, just because I'm not here, or you're not here, just because we're not here, the electricity bill still has to be paid. The water bill still has to be paid. The the gas bill still has to be paid. The insurance still has to be paid. The lawn still has to be mowed. All those expenses continue to go. And when that offering plate comes around, And we reach in our pocket and we put something in that offering plate. Let's realize we're saying, Lord, I love you this much. I'm bringing this to a close. And here are the words of the poet I'd like to share with us. Go break to the needy, sweet charity's bread. For giving is living, the angel said. And must I be giving again and again? My feeble and pitiless answer ran. Oh no, said the angel piercing me through. Just give till the master stops giving to you. Is Jesus the Lord of your life this morning? Is Jesus the master of your life? If Jesus is not Lord and master of all of your life right now, He's not Lord and Master at all in your life. Are there changes you need to make? Do you need for the very first time to come in simple trusting faith and repenting of everything that's sin in your life, confess His name and be buried in the waters of baptism? Do that before you leave this building. Or maybe you've done that, but you haven't lived God's kind of life. and You haven't lived with Jesus as the Lord and Master of your life. You need to come back and Let brothers and sisters pray with you and for you. I don't know what's going on in your life. If there are needs that we can help you with, come and make those known right now. Let's together we stand and while we sing.